Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. As this morning we finish up the series we began six weeks ago, I've, uh, I, I hope you have been encouraged. Many of you have said that this is a relatively new or refreshing study for you and has been timely, and so I hope that's true for many others of you. This is our last week, as I said, and so just so that we know kind of what's going on coming forward, next week we're going to have a guest, one of our missionaries, Eddie Parks, who is the director for RUF, or campus minister at Brown University. He will be here, and he'll be leading us and teaching us from the Word. Uh, then the week following, Camper will be leading us uh, for the next several weeks uh, in a study of, of 2 Timothy, and that'll take us into the middle of July. Um, and then uh, Ken and I will finish up July. We're not sure yet exactly what we're doing, but Ken Bush one week and, and I'll be preaching the other. Then in early August at some time, we're going to have the campus minister from RUF in Lynchburg will be coming in. The date's one of those two dates early in August uh, because we have an inordinate number of our youth uh, moving, leaving Williamsburg and going there. I think there's five uh, that are going to be there for the first time next year. I think Camp uh, Taylor has some connections there or something that he just wants to go visit and he's sending all of our youth to Lynchburg. That's my conspiracy theory. But anyway, <laughs> but we thought if we got that many that are going, we need to find out who's going to be teaching them, so let's bring them in so we can all check the guy out. So anyway, um, <laughs> so, uh, and then beginning in the fall, we'll be again a series in the Sermon on the Mount. Camper and I will be uh, sharing in that, and then actually the beginning of in 2016, we'll be going back and doing a series specifically detailed on the Beatitudes and on the Lord's Prayer. And so, if you haven't read Matthew 5 through 7, you will by the end of this time next year. But uh, nevertheless, before we come to uh, our study this morning, let's go to our, our God in prayer. Our Father, we do come to you with thanksgiving for the word that you have given to us. A word that sometimes we can take for granted as we have so many volumes and copies of it on our shelves. And yet the word through which you bring life. I pray, Lord, that you would open our ears this morning, that we may hear your voice through the words that we read and consider. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive the truth as it pertains to us, both our brokenness and the promises that we may be able to trust you, and that we would, you would open our eyes, that we would not only see you, but see this world that you have put us in, and seeing it through your eyes, seeing our neighbors who are in need, seeing the beauty of your creation, and seeing the hope that you have promised through your word. Bless us now as we study it. May you shape us. May we honor you, we pray, to the glory of Christ, who is the Word incarnated. Amen. When Benjamin Franklin was the ambassador to France, he experienced some measure of ridicule at the uh, hands of some of the Parisian elites because of one of his interests. While Franklin was, by nobody's estimation, not even his own, would rightly be considered a Christian, uh, Franklin had a, a fascination and a great appreciation for the Bible. He, was, he loved to hear it preached. He was a, uh, rented a pew seat regularly. It was a Christ church in Philadelphia. He was a great fan of George Whitfield, who was arguably the greatest, not only orator of his generation, but one of the greatest preachers of the English-speaking world. And Franklin became close with him and would go whenever it was possible to listen to him preach the sound and undistorted gospel. 
But Franklin also was an avid reader of the Bible. He appreciated its beauty and the wisdom that was there, and while the redemptive value seemed to have been lost on him, nevertheless, it was a regular practice for him to be reading his Bible. But while he was living in France, these people who had just come out of the Enlightenment and all of their skepticism about the Bible, uh, they mocked him when he would tell them that that was one of the things he enjoyed, one of the things that he appreciated. Franklin, not one to take mockery particularly well, at least not against himself, decided that he would kind of mock them back uh, without their knowledge. And so one day he came in with what looked like to be an old manuscript, it was, and, uh, and he just said it was a poem that he had come across and that he had really come to appreciate. And he told them this in a way that he knew that would beg them because they, being elitists, wanted to be in and the knowledge of poetry and asked him to share it, which was his intention to begin with. And so he unrolled his, his paper and he says, and he began to read this. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, and though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful to my God, my Savior, my all. And the room loved the poetry. And the people began saying, that's marvelous. In fact, where, where did you get such a magnificent verse? And Franklin, with his wit, said, you all can have a copy. It's in any Bible that you want. It's Habakkuk chapter 3. In fact, it's contained in the text that we'll be looking at this morning. These are the final words of Habakkuk. And so I invite you this morning to turn to Habakkuk 3 as we look at these final verses 16 uh, through 19. But while we're reading and as we study, what we want to be asking ourselves, and the question we want to be answering this morning is this, what is it that makes these verses, these words, so magnificent? That's the question in part that we'll be asking. But right now, let's hear the word of God. Habakkuk 3.16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree shall not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. The word of the Lord. What is it that makes these verses so magnificent that even those who not only are unbelieving, but who would scorn the whole idea of Scripture would be intrigued with it? Well, I suspect that while just the poetic value might get lost on us in some ways because, you know, it doesn't even rhyme particularly well, not in the English, there are some attributes that come through this that I think that people can appreciate, particularly those who are people who are people of faith and yet people who are looking for hope at the same time. One of the things that I see is 
that I particularly appreciate is the courage with which Habakkuk um, has learned to embrace a situation even in the midst of uh, adversity and in the face of, of coming adversity. We see him dealing very real with what's coming and what he's experiencing and yet you hear this man standing firm, trusting in God. I think secondly, we also should note and, and recognize, or at least it stands out to me as I, I look at this particular passage, what I think is the theme of this passage, which is stunning, is the joy that Habakkuk seems to possess despite uh, his, his present circumstances, because that's really how he ends. He acknowledges yet again what God has said, not only that things are difficult right now, but God has promised that things are going to get even worse for a time. And yet, as he finishes this up, he declares not only that he will have joy, but that he does have joy because he has a relationship and belief in God. As we look at this text, one of the things that I think it's important that we consider, perhaps the primary thing we need to consider here, is that the key to Habakkuk's ability to have joy and his experience of joy is that even in the midst of his adversity, he has a substantive faith. It's not just a general faith, there is a God, all things are going to work out. It is a real faith, it is a substantive faith. It is a faith that is very aware both of circumstances and of what God is like. And as we've been looking at this, this Bible for a book, this, this, this man's life, this journey with him, and we've seen the transformation that has taken place in him. We began by seeing a man who was called by God, who was faithful to God, who was a faithful priest to God, called to be a prophet, unique among the prophets because most of the prophets go to the people speaking for God. This particular prophet was going to God speaking for the people and saying, Lord, why are things the way they are? Things are just not right. Why aren't you doing anything? He's always been a faithful man. He's always known God. He's always had a relatively substantive faith. And yet we see this man continuing to grow, not only in his knowledge, but in the way that it affects and shapes his life. And it's because he has a very real, a very personal, and a very deep understanding of who God is. And we need to remember that if we're going to be able to experience joy in the midst of or despite our circumstances, it's going to come in one of two ways. Either because we're not dealing in reality or because we have a substantive faith and can cling to the promises and the power of God. Now, as we look at this passage today, there are two, I'll just call faith facts or faith truths that I, I want us to look at this morning. And the first one is this, is that genuine faith often includes an element of fear. It's counterintuitive. It's probably counter to what some of us have been taught. But we need to let the scriptures speak for themselves here. And as we look in verse 16, we see very clearly that this man who has a deep and substantive faith, who only moments later is going to express the joy that he will have and the joy that he still has because of the confidence he has in God, all those things are true. But nevertheless, here's his emotional state. When I hear what God is going to do, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me. 
here's a man who all these anatomical references are, are saying to us is that the fear that he's experiencing, even though that he's a man of faith, it affects him in every aspect of his being. It even, even affects him physically. One of the things that's not come out in the English, but it would be perfectly appropriate for us to recognize or, or, or to discern from the Hebrew is this, is that he essentially is saying with some of this, the combination of things, is that it's causing him to be ill. He, he, literally, he has an upset stomach when he thinks of what is coming. And yet, he's going to stand. And yet, he has joy. And we need to reconcile these things because we have this tendency, particularly in evangelical circles, of thinking that if you have faith, that you will not experience fear. But if you're experiencing fear, then either you have no faith or you keep your mouth shut because people will think lesser of you. Habakkuk blows the cover off that entirely, and here's a man of substantive faith who's being lifted up not only as a prophet of God, but as one who is an example to us of a broken and yet godly person, just like us, who is experiencing the joy of his faith and yet is physically ill because of the fear that he's experienced because of the culture that he lives in, the circumstance that he's facing, and the promises that God has made of God's plan. We need to recognize that Habakkuk here is seeing things more clearly than he ever had before. And he's no longer wrestling with the theological issues of what God is like. He's, he's, he's even more certain, more clear about what God is like. And yet he's still very afraid of the coming invasion and the collapse of his culture and the disappearance of the world that he has known because he's grown up in it. We, we take that very seriously, and there's many that would say, you know, but I, I thought that if we, if Habakkuk had a mature faith, he, he wouldn't have any fear. We need to realize Habakkuk is reminding us, not the only place in Scripture, but Habakkuk is reminding us that fear is a part of life. We are far more complex than sometimes we let on. And the fear is part of life, and fear is even a part of life for those who are the most faithful and substantive in terms of belief that there's even an appropriateness of having an element of fear in certain circumstances. There's an old story about the former boxing champion Muhammad Ali. When I say an old story, it means it's probably not true, but it's a good story nevertheless. That Muhammad Ali was, uh, was seen on an airplane as they uh, flying from one place to the other, and the, as, the, um, as um, the attendants were preparing everybody for the takeoff as they go through the, they informed everybody, you know, through the motions, here's how you put your seat together, life preserver. And one of the attendants had noticed that uh, Muhammad Ali had not buckled his seatbelt. So the head of the attendant crew had gone over to him and said, um, sir, w you know, would you please buckle your seat? And reportedly what Ali had said, look, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the lady, not willing to take anything from him, said, well, Superman doesn't need a plane either. Buckle your belt. Um, <laughs> again, don't know whether it's true, but it makes the point. The point is, is the reason that there is a safety belt is there's reason for fear. I mean, as safe as air travel is, there is a potential, and there the caution needs to be taken. Well, life is also dangerous and bumpy, and so we, we need to be aware. And therefore, because it's dangerous, it's reasonable, even for people who trust in God, to experience fear. Because difficult things, hard things, painful things do happen. And we need to realize that it is a pure fallacy to think that 
faith is never accompanied by fear. Think about it biblically. Not only do we have the testimony of Habakkuk, but we see some of the most godly people who've walked the face of the earth, those who have been recorded for us and even report to us. Abraham, the father of our faith, the one with whom the covenant was made, you know, he knew time and again what it meant to be fearful when he faced un, uh, uncertain futures. And over and over again, we see this man of God upon whom our faith failing because of his fear. But this man who was chosen by God was racked with fear throughout his life, and yet he was made just, declared just, because he believed and trusted God. We've got to reconcile that. We think about David, who admitted over and over again, if you read the Psalms, that his heart was failing. He looked at the circumstances and he realized things were threatening. This warrior also lived afraid. This man, after God's own heart, lived with faith and fear in his daily life. John the Baptist, if you think about, if you know his story, while languishing in prison, he found himself overcome with fear. The Apostle Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, for when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours, having had no rest, we had been harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. What Paul was saying, look, by the time we got to you, we were doing what God wanted us to do, but we'd been so beaten up, we were kind of, he certainly would have understood that upset stomach that Habakkuk was experiencing. Some of those we would look to as the greatest of faith also, while having faith, experienced fear. In one sense, that might simply just be a reminder of their humanness. And we might say, well, then that's not saying that we ought to have that. But when we think of one other example that we're given in Scripture, and that is Christ Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, who was experiencing fear and yet never sinned. His fear was so significant that he was sweating blood, pleading, Father, if there's any other way, but nevertheless, I will do what you want me to do. It's the perfect example that in this world there's much to fear, even while there's much beauty, and that those who are the most faithful are not immune to fear. Contrary to sometimes what we have tend to think or what we've been taught, sometimes it's when we mature in our faith that we have more reason to fear. You know, as children, we don't know a whole lot. I don't know about in your household, but there are things that we chose to spare our children of knowing at different times in their life stage. They just didn't need to know. But as they got older, as they matured, as we were trying to prepare them for their own adulthood, we screened them things from them less. They needed to know that life is unfair, that life is dangerous, and God is still good. And so they knew a little bit more. We allowed them to know a little bit more. And it seems to me that God does that somewhat in our lives as well. Sometimes those who are new believers, not that new believers never have any difficulties, but those who have come to under the impression that there is no fear in the Christian life, perhaps we're sheltered from a lot, but the more they engage the world, unless you hide within the walls of a church, the more we engage this world and the people in this world, the more we engage people in their lives, the more we realize we don't know. There's frustrations. There's ugliness and there is reason for fear. It's actually a very immature and a very sad life that is never exposed to the possibility of fear. There's actually, uh, Philip Yancey is a writer, some of you have been uh, read some of his stuff. He once made the statement that it, where there is no opportunity for doubt, there's also no opportunity for faith. 
what he's saying is that faith is we're trusting in a God who is unseen. And in order for us to wrestle, if we can't ask questions, the only reason that we would not doubt anything is because we don't question anything. The opportunity for doubt gives us an opportunity for faith. Likewise, I think it's appropriate. We learn from Habakkuk, where there's no opportunity for fear, there's no opportunity for faith. If we live in a safe bubble, there's no need for us to actually feel the need for our deliverance. You may have seen the movie The Truman Show, which is just an intriguing perspective of a controlled, sheltered, isolated life. And he went through his entire life uh, to a point, just isolated from any difficulties, everything was just wonderful, and yet something within him was just knowing he needed something more because he was not complete in this perfect naivete, and neither are we. Habakkuk is a reminder to us that God is good even in the midst of our circumstances that oftentimes we don't understand. But if we look at the world, even when we believe in God, it doesn't mean we will not experience fear. In fact, we need to embrace it, remembering that the primary message of the book of Habakkuk is the righteous live by faith. And so it, if you're experiencing fear, I would just say there's no, stop kicking yourself for it. Acknowledge it, deal with it, and stop kicking other people when you see that they're experiencing levels of fear. Embrace it as Habakkuk is doing, and then trust God. Because while I'm encouraging you to embrace fear, we're also told in the scripture that faith casts out fear. And so the only way for us to move into being afraid of fewer things is not by pretending that nothing bad can happen, not by pretending that we are immune or that we don't have any fears, is by dealing, being honest about the reality of our fears. And then reminding ourselves of the goodness of God and the power of God and the purpose of God and the plan of God. And that's exactly what we see unfolding here in this passage as this man is saying, look, I, I, I'm seeing the world very clearly. In fact, I have something that most people don't have. I see the world and God says, it's even more complex, more dangerous than you think. He has the word of God to tell him. And yet, he says, I'm going to stand with courage. I'm going to, we see that at the end of verse 16. And then verses 18 and 19. Yet I will rejoice in God. I will take joy. God is my strength. We see somebody that's not only saying, well, one day once we get past this, he's talking about what God is doing now. And so he is taking the faith that he has and he's applying it to the, his own fear. And the only way for us to genuinely get past levels of fear is by applying faith to what we truly do fear. It will cast it out, but we will experience fear in this life. And while the first thing that I wanted us to see is that there is fear even when we have substantive faith. I think the purpose that we have here is this, is that substantive faith enables us to experience joy regardless of our circumstances. Again, that's what Habakkuk is, is describing here. Some theologians and Bible scholars refer to what Habakkuk says in these last verses as the greatest statement of faith in the entire Bible. I know what's coming, and yet not only will I once I'm delivered, but I now I am trusting 
in God. Because Habakkuk is declaring his, his faith, his trust, his delight, even in the midst of a very graphic picture of things that are, are going to happen. And that's where the poetry comes in. You know, even if there's no crops, even if there's no, no, uh, no cattle, basically if there's total devastation of the economic system that even provides an opportunity for us to feed, to eat, feed our families and eat. Even if that's the ultimate occurrence when these people come and invade us, I'm going to wait until God does what he says he's going to do and he's going to bring judgment on the people who bring judgment, who, who, are, who are hurting us. I'm going to trust in God. God is my strength. Habakkuk is, is responding with faith. It's interesting as we, we look in the first few verses of this chapter, in verses 1 through 15, and as we looked at last week, we see that Habakkuk is given a picture of a future world that is to come. It's not only the world that he's going to experience when the invasion takes place of his nation, but it's a picture of things when they're restored, when Christ comes back and restores all things. So there's the promise that he has, but it's not something he's experiencing. Habakkuk giving the vision of God, knowing the promise, knowing what God is like, even in the midst of his present circumstance, he's able to take delight even while he's experiencing fear. He's able to have an enjoyment of his life regardless. Now, as we look at Habakkuk, we are reminded of the hope that we can have as well. And as we look at this, it's God speaking to the person who suffers and tells you that your suffering is not outside of his purview, his purpose, his control. But it's also important to recognize that God through Habakkuk is saying suffering only occurs for a time some a longer time than others, but in the scope of things, it's a limited period of time. It's part of what God is doing in us, and we need to cling to that. But what I really appreciate is that when you look at Habakkuk, if you read this, if you study this, what, what he's interacting, there's no pie-in-the-sky theology here. There's no religious escapism that sometimes we, as evangelical Christians, are guilty of. We have a bad situation and we only look to what's going to happen in the future and pretend like today we stick our head in the sand we, you know, pretending like it, it's not nothing hurts Habakkuk is very real and very raw for a very real life and he's preparing us in that way but we also need to recognize that as we see through Habakkuk, as Habakkuk was able to see, and we can see through Habakkuk, there's other ways in which sometimes we can get a glimpse and we are reminded of what happens later as well. And knowing what happens changes the way we experience things when we are experiencing it. I think that makes sense. Well, hopefully it will in a moment. It made sense when I wrote it, but then a lot of things make sense when I write them down that don't make sense to other people. So let me try that again. When we know the result, maybe that's a better way of putting it, when we know the result of things, it changes the experience we have even when we're going through an experience. Let me use a simple illustration. Have any of you ever wanted to watch a ball game of your school or of your team, but you weren't able to do so? So you taped it, and as hard as you tried to hear what the result was, some idiot told you what happened. 
And then you go back and you watch the game. Some of you didn't even do that because why bother? But so you go back and you watch the game and you experience in a totally different way. Imagine your team is in a very close game. Maybe you're even down a little bit. And you've got the ball and you turn it over. If you're watching it in live time, some of you, I don't want to be near you. <laughs> but you already know you won. And so you analyze it. You may still want the guy benched. You may still want the guy killed and carved and, you know, whatever. That's just depending on where you're from. That would be those of us from Southeast Conference area schools. Um, <laughs> but you just don't experience it the same way. You can live with it. You don't care about the flaws because you know you ultimately won. It changes our perspective. That's true for all of us, except for maybe Ben and other Alabama people, because they don't like even being close games. So that's, they're still <laughs> mad uh, in that. But those of us that live in the real world, when we have experienced that, it changes everything. Well, we have been given glimpse after glimpse after glimpse, and through Habakkuk, Habakkuk has been shown, this is the way things are ultimately going to be. It doesn't remove us from the present reality. We still continue to experience life, and life has its difficulties, its hardships, its pains. And yet, when we know what the promise of God is, and we know what the character of God is, the experiences that we have are seen and, and felt in an entirely different way. We don't have to escape and pretend like nothing bad is happening. In fact, we are free now and empowered to deal with them in a way that we might not be emotionally capable of dealing if we did not have the hope of the promise. But because we've been given a glimpse of the future, we can experience and analyze and not necessarily feel the same kind of sting and pain as we would if we were those who were hoping to have hope, but not promised a real hope. We need to learn to see our present pain and our struggles through the light of eternity. There's a theologian from a previous generation who was uh, prominent named G.C. Burkauer. I doubt most of you will run out and buy his book, but I didn't want to be accused of plagiarizing here. But he once wrote this, pain can be seen as the great not yet of eternity. It reminds us of where we are and fans in us a thirst for where we will someday be. In other words, when we're experiencing pain, we are reminded that this life is not heaven. And no matter how many books sell, you will not have your best life now. And if you have your best life now, it's because you don't know Jesus and you have no hope of a better life later. But if we are in this life and we have a life to come that will be without pain, without misery, and without lack of understanding, no matter how great this life is, it still can't be our best life now. And so when we experience pain, it reminds us that the best life is yet to come, but because it is coming, we don't have to be undone now. I'm gonna wrap it up with this, just a story. This man who was journeying during the pioneer days was heading out west to make a new life for himself. Not a particularly wise man, he had left at a time that it was beginning to get cold, in fact, it actually got cold. He crossed over the Alleghenies and comes to the Ohio River in the dark, knowing that there's this great expanse, but not really able to gauge it. The only thing he's able to make out is it's iced over. 
and there's no bridge nearby. But he needs to move on. He has a place that he needs to get to, and it's on the other side of that river. And so he begins to ask himself this question. It's iced. How iced is it? I wonder if the ice will hold me. And so he steps out and puts his weight on the ice close to the banks, and it doesn't hear any cracking. It doesn't give. He feels a little comfortable. He takes another step out. But still, being cautious, perhaps even being wise, he realizes you don't want the full weight, and so he gets on his hands and knees, and he's crawling across the Ohio River. And with each step or each movement that he makes, he's hoping and even praying that the, that the ice will be able to sustain him all the way through. When he gets near the middle of the river, he's startled for a moment because he hears a noise that he doesn't at first recognize. It's not a cracking it's not a, crum uh, a, uh, a, you know, a, a crumbling, but it's more kind of like a roar. He's not sure of what it is. He's afraid that as you get out closer to the middle where the strength of the current is, that perhaps the river is not iced over. Is it a roar? Because it's coming from out in front of him. But after a few moments, as the roar was getting louder, even though he had been stationary, coming past him was a man on a sleigh pulling a load of coal. Man waves to him and continues on his way. And for the moment, the man realizes, I'm worried as to whether this ice can hold me. And this man is willing, to, is willing to go not only with him, but with a horse and a sleigh and a load of coal. He's operating with great confidence. Now, one of the differences, the other man had a great experience. He had known. He was more knowledgeable. The primary thing that we need to understand from this story is, is that, one, we need to ask ourselves a question is, we who believe in God, which man are we more like? Do we crawl through life hoping that God will sustain us? Or do we boldly go knowing that God will sustain us for his purpose? But the important thing that we need to come to, regardless of where you find yourself on that spe uh, spectrum, and I suspect that we can be anywhere in between depending on our circumstances, the thing that is most significant is the ice sustained the both of them. The issue is not how they were experiencing. The issue was the capability of the ice. The issue is not whether we are bold or whether we are timid. The issue is God good and faithful and capable, and we will make it through. His promises will happen. But how each man experienced it, how we experience in life, is based upon whether we're trusting, whether we know what God is like, whether we are believing and being reminded that our lives are in God's hand. That's what Habakkuk was understanding here. He says, the Lord is my strength. And he makes my feet like the deer's and makes me tread on the high places, which wouldn't be ice. But the high places are the solid places. And those who are trusting some of you are finding circumstances that make you want to kind of crawl out, but you are still secure. And the more you crawl, and the more you see others who don't need to crawl, who are experiencing the same things, the more you might be willing to get up and walk on your own. My point is not to say one is better than the other. You choose. We who belong to God, 
He is our strength. He will support us. But we see in Habakkuk a man that moved from crawling to confidently walking because what he knows of God without minimizing the reality of this life and because he knows his hope is sure. That's us as well. We're told that the righteous, which is a status, not an achievement, live by faith. Not a generic thing, but a belief in the character and the promise of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give thanks to you for the love that you've demonstrated and the promises that you've made. And I pray for all of us who are here, whether we are crawling or whether we are running, you would show yourself to be faithful and good. For those of us who are crawling, that we would find joy in the confidence that we can have in you. For those who are running, that they would experience the joy of your comfort and provision and love. But Lord, we pray to you, grant us faith to trust. Grant us joy in our faith. Grant us the ability to be wise, not diminish the difficulties of life. That those who are living this life without hope will see in us a joy that makes no sense. It may prompt them to ask for the reason for our hope and that you will enable us to share the glory of Christ. That we might experience the joy of seeing new life. Bless us, we pray in Christ. Amen. Please stand as we sing our parting song and praises to our God.
now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord shine his face upon you and give you peace, secured by Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen.